This episode is brought to you by Scott Keogh Horsemanship, offering a wide range of services from horse breaking and training to clinics and private lessons, tested, tried and true horsemanship coaching and advice, clear and easy to understand horsemanship advice, a common sense approach with no showmanship or gimmicks. Go to www.skhorsemanship.com for more information, products and a range of Scott's DVDs. Sport Horse 505 due to come out any day. Follow Scott on Instagram and Facebook. Hey folks, Scott Keogh here from The Saddle and boy am I excited about our next guest. When it comes to all-rounders in Australia, I- I'm not sure if they're any better. We'll put it this way, Chilasini and John Stanton both agree that this is the best all-round horseman Australia has ever seen. It's a very big welcome to a man who's about to turn 90 this month. Good morning, Vic Goff. Okay. <laughs> Great to have you here, mate. You feel comfortable? Oh, yeah, really. Right. Look, Vic, tell me, where did it all start? How'd you grow up and how'd you get into the horses and the rodeo? Oh, well, um, we were born in Bowen. We had a property out of, outside of Bowen. North Queensland? Yeah, yeah. Bowen, North Queensland, yeah. And my father used to do a lot of horse breaking and that sort of thing and he was a very extremely good horseman and he he won dozens of camp drafts but never travelled uh, away from the north but he's, he used to win drafts all the time and everybody <coughs> used to say, oh yeah, but Billy Goff gets a easy beast. The trouble is it wasn't easy beast, he knew what it was going to do. <laughs> <laughs> he could read it, the others couldn't. Yeah, right. And, so, so when you say your dad was a great horseman, was he a guy that mm. could ride a buck jumper or an English horse? Or well, he could ride a buck jumper. I don't think he ever got bucked off a horse in his life. And I see him riding some pretty tough horses. Yeah, over times, and uh, he could make a horse do anything. But he used to uh, compete in the local shows up there and do it. But he won nearly all the camp drafts in the North Queensland which I just got to sash here where he won the big camp draft at Mount St John Rodeo in 1934. He won it by 29 points. Yeah, right. <clears throat> and uh, the camp draft arena then was out amongst trees and long grass. <laughs> <laughs> so so looking back, your dad, was he a man of his time or was he a forward thinker, like ahead of his time, do you think? Oh, well, he was, uh, he was a better horseman than... Uh, then on his time, he was a, a leading horseman. Yep. He could be camped on a horse down the road and there was a stone there. He could make a change of stride and miss it and all that sort of thing. You know, he had great control over his horses. And where do you think that come from, mate? Where did he get it from? Well, <clears throat> his uh, parents weren't really good horse he just He said he was breaking in horses from when he was 14-year-old and he just learned it himself. Yeah, right. Mm. So you are innovators, you goffs. Um, <laughs> so, so look, tell me, um, so so growing up, you did have your dad there to show you the right way from the wrong way? Yeah. When I was from about uh, 13 or 14, I'd done all the first ride of all these horses he broke in, and I was pretty disappointed if they didn't buck. Yep. But back in those days, <clears throat> breaking in horses, uh, they were all about seven or eight year old. Yeah. They were all older horses. And a lot of them would buck, whereas today they're breaking their horses at 18 months and two-year-old and they don't think of it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, I just learned to ride buck jumpers and 
and that sort of stuff, you know, from the word go. So how old were you when you entered your first bronc ride? I was 16. 16. Mm. I uh, I went to the Home Hill Rodeo in 1967, uh, whenever I was 16 anyway, I know. I caught the rail motor from Bowen to Home Hill and everybody says, you're crazy, go on our way to rodeo, you're not ready to go yet. So anyway, I, I said, well, I'm going. So I went to Home Hill Rodeo and I won the novice bronc ride. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, that's crazy. So uh, were you still in school, mate, or were you out in the workforce by uh, then? Well, we, we only done a bit of correspondence school. I'd done about three or four years of paperwork, you know, the correspondence schools. I never went to school actually, and uh, so um, that's how it started. And then uh, at home we used to um, have a milkers, milking cows, and they run out in a their smallest paddock was the, was 1,250-acre paddock. and That's the smallest paddock? Yeah, that we had. And they, every afternoon I'd get the milkers in, and then there'd be some uh, bush cattle with them, and, and I'd bring... Uh, this bunch of bush cattle in, and a mate of mine lived uh, about six miles away, and I'd put these bush cattle in the calf pen, and that he'd ride over there at night time, and we'd put carbide lights on top of the yard posts, and that was our lights for the arena. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and we'd pull these big cattle in, the three or four-year-old bullocks and that sort of thing, and pull them into the calf pen, into the bale with a long rope, and then put a saddle on and a crupper, and no irons on the saddle, and we'd sit up on these and let them out. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, we were about 30 miles from town, no helmets on and no mobile phones. No ambulance. Nobody thought about any problems, and those things could really buck. <laughs> yeah, tough men for tough times, they say. So uh, that was part of learning the things. That, and if you ride a bullock with a, a saddle on it, uh, it's worse than a horse because a horse bucks different to a bullock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So in that early horsemanship journey, mm. like let's say your late teens and kicking about, were there other men that sort of shaped you or was it just sort of your dad? Oh, mostly dad and uh, and I just wanted to ride buck jumpers. And uh, in 1945, just at the end of the war, see, when the war was on, and the trains couldn't take any on essential goods. And in 1945, there was a camp after Proserpine. And uh, Dad went to the station master in Bowen, and he said the restrictions are lifted now. You can take the two camp after horses uh, on the train to Proserpine. Because back in those days, we didn't have horse transports. So we went to the Proserpine rodeo and camped after. Dad won the open draft, and I won the the novice draft. Yeah, right. And then we went back to uh, the railway station in Bowen that night to put them on and the station master in Proserpine said, no, the restrictions are not lifting and he wouldn't take our horses back to Bowen. So we went up the street and had a feed and we rode back home 80 miles just from Proserpine to home and we got home about four or five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Jeez, that's a bit different to pulling out in the goose neck now, isn't it? yeah. So uh, uh, Dad just rose in the head, uh, you know, through the dark all the bloody nights, just by the stars. <laughs> oh, my God. So uh, so we won the both drafts and rode 80 miles home 
at night. <laughs> Not many people can say they've done that, a father and son duo. Mm. Right. So um, so when did you hit the road rodeoing? Uh, in 1949, I, I left home. I went, I went to the Rocky and Rodeo in 1949. I went with Tom Willoughby and Noel Bottom and Kevin McTaggart and all those we travelled on further down through New South Wales and... And we went to Gresford. I won the Open Bronx Rod at Gresford, and uh, and I won the Open Bronx Rod at Tamworth Show. And then we went through to South Australia and done a whole tour. And that was nineteen forty nine. Nineteen forty nine. So we're talking the McTaggarts and the Woodses. Yeah, they were all there. They were all there. Mm. Did you ever get on uh, Curio? No, no, I never, never had the opportunity. Yeah, right. You reckon you would have got it twisted? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got records here that you did ride plenty of unrideable horses in your day. Mm. So when did you cross over to being able to do the timed events as well? Was that at the end of your rough riding? Or? Well, I was always doing timed events. Uh, uh, timed events, you mean Bulldog? And yes. I, I still, well, I, I started steer wrestling, I think, about 1950, I think. I can't remember the year. Probably in 1950 of. 51 or something like that. I won my second steer wrestling I ever went in. I won the first buck jump I ever went in. I won my first show jump and I ever went in. <laughs> I won uh, a lot of stuff. In 1960, I went show jumping. Yep. What made you go show jumping, mate? Like that's a totally different arena, you know? Yes, I know, but it's uh, involved in horses. But, uh, the judging was so bad in... And a lot of the rodeos and camped after, and when I was going it, I, I got a bit pissed off on it, and I said, well, I'm going show jumping, and if they leave a rail it, they can't change the swore. Yeah, absolutely. So I went show jumping in 1960, and uh, I won my first show jumping event at the Townsville Show on a on a green horse that I just trained out of the uh, show jumping, and I didn't have much experience in it. But anyway, I won my first show jumping event. And I thought, well, this is pretty easy, but it wasn't so easy afterwards. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, you were very, very successful. Was it? Did you come close to making an Olympics? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I was um, on the short list uh, for 1964, I think it was the Tokyo, was it? The Olympics, I yeah. think it was Tokyo then. And uh, Franz Moringa was a, came out from uh, Germany and he trained the uh, Australian three-day event team that went to Rome and won that. And anyway, he was running a school in in uh, Victoria and I went to the school there and I had a pretty handy horse and uh, he wanted me to be on the short list. But back in those days, you had to be an amateur horseman to get at the uh, Olympics. And because I was... Making a living out of rodeo, that I was—they said I was a professional horseman, so they wouldn't let me go. Yeah, right. Uh, simply because of what I was making a living out of riding horses. But Kevin Bacon went, and he made a fortune out of riding horses. He was a, a more of a professional anyway. <laughs> but see, Kevin Bacon owned a soft drink factory back in Dungog. Yeah. So he said that's what he made his living out of the soft drink factory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to have a bit of a cash cow to fund a lot of these things. So yeah. tell me, when you pulled into a rodeo in, in the 50s, in the 60s, 
Could you make enough money to, to feed a family and, and, and not work during the week? No, we, we used to do a lot of work in between rodeos. I used to break in horses at properties. You know, I might stay at one place two or three weeks breaking in horses and uh, doing various jobs. That's why you had to keep doing that to go. You couldn't make enough money out of rodeos to live on. Yeah, nothing's changed there. <laughs> <laughs> That's for damn sure. So, uh, yeah. so tell me, in those days, I mean, I, I think it's incredible the horsemen that you, you would have uh, rubbed shoulders with. Hmm. Who were the guys that, you know, were big influences on you once once you were out there on the road? Yeah, well, I don't know. There was a lot of them. Uh, camped after, I suppose, Charlie Floor was the leading camped after at that period in time. Yeah. He had a, a black mare called Vicky. She was a great mare. But then, giving you an idea how the judging was back in those days, uh, you might have heard of old Wally Ray. Yeah. The Member of Parliament went to... He was equity for the Queen in London. When he finished up, he was a politician. And um, we were at the Winton, I think it was the Australian Championship draft, and he said the boundaries is the deadline. So if you hit the boundary, you're out. Charlie Floor went out on old Vicky, straight across the ring on a fast beast and couldn't catch it. The beast hit the uh, head on into the arena on the other side knocked itself out, fell down, laid on the ground. Charlie pulled up and sat beside it and it got up on his feet and he brought it back around and put it and won the draft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I ran second in the draft. Oh, wow, that anyway, was stung. That's the sort of things that used to happen in the judging back in those days. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's um, it, it's it's your era that, that made things better for us. Hmm. You know, you had to have the wars with the committees and you had to unite. And That's right. Yeah, so they started this camp after association and the ACA now has um, got all the rules and it's all the judges all got lined out and then nothing, nothing like that happens anymore today. <laughs> yeah, thank God for that. <laughs> Tell me, they said you had a spectacular bulldogging horse called Trumpet. Hmm. What was so special about Trumpet? Well, he was the greatest little horse Going, <clears throat> he, he was a, a snorty little horse. Was he? Uh, I bought him from a bloke called Fred Muller from Collinsville. They sent him down on a, on a train on a K-wagon and I went over to catch him the, just on dark in the K-wagon and I couldn't get him. He was snorting and flying around. So I left him there and came back next morning and rode him home. But he was a highly intelligent little horse. He was only 14 hands, but he was by a thoroughbred horse to a horse called Stanula. And Stanula won the major races in North Queensland. And Stanula's hired his last foal when he was 31 year old. Ooh. And Trumpet, uh, <clears throat> he called Trumpet because he, he was always blowing his nose, snorting at you and that sort of stuff. Yep. And I'd bulldog him off him in the ring. And the pickup buzz couldn't catch him. He was that bloody fast. And anyway, I uh, was at a place and we were going mustering on that day and I couldn't catch the little bastard. And he was in a little yard. Anyway, I thought, well, I'm going to fix him up. So, <laughs> so I, uh, I had him at the end of the day. He was following me like following me around like a pet mouse. Are you <laughs> going to tell us how to do that? <laughs> and uh, anyway... I'd bulldog off him in a rodeo and he'd gallop straight back to me. 
counted straight back to me and um, and people in the crowd used to say, oh, you know, you've got pockets of sugar for him. I didn't have any pockets of sugar for him. <laughs> he just knew it was better to be beside me than the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, let's stay on that era. If there was a man that you would never bet against to ride a rough horse, who would it be? Oh, well, back in those areas, in my opinion, the best bronc rider in Australia back then was probably Alan Woods. Yep. And uh, Wally and then claimed to be, but Alan was a better bronc rider than Wally. Alan, yep. Mm. Wally was a a good bronc rider, but Wally never ever took any risks. He'd clamp down and hang back and that sort of thing. Alan could draw it. Well, he'd done it with Curio. Yeah. He'd come out there spurring it like, it was, you know, it's a quiet horse. He'd throw everything out of me and uh, he'd never never played safe, Alan, and he still, he could do it. But the day that he rode Curio. Were you there that day? No. But I seen the video of yep. it, the slow motion of it, and when the horse threw Alan, he went straight up out of the saddle and his feet still stayed in the irons and his left spur hooked under the cant of the saddle and pulled the saddle about six inches above the back and stopped him from coming all the in and then hit the back and landed back in the saddle and kept riding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've seen the video too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how that happened. All right. So what about like going station to station, breaking in? Who's the best you ever seen handle tough horses? Oh, well, I don't know. I never worked with many other people with handling tough horses. Yep. Daryl Holden and I used to uh, do a lot of breaking in between them, but Daryl was, you know, all right, but it wasn't, you know, anything outstanding with handling young horses. Right. So at what age did you back off the rodeos and, and go drafting? Oh, well, <clears throat> I was drafting from day one. Yep. See, Back in those days, the camp them were older people. Yeah. And uh, the, all the only younger blokes were rodeoing. Yep. But I was the only bloke in the Rough Riders Association was camp them. Yep. <laughs> I didn't belong to either the camps. That's how it was. And uh, trumpet, I used to draft him and bulldog him, rope him all the time. But, but I always had three or four camp draft horses on my truck. Yep. And good horses. So I won a lot of drafts. I don't know how... I never kept account of my drafts. That's the trouble. I, did, I back when you're young, you're bulletproof, and you don't think of yeah. one day it might be handy to know. But yeah. anyway, I won drafts in five states of Australia, and um, my last draft, I think that uh, no, I won the open draft at Maribyrnong three, three or four times in 1964 when I was show jumping continuously. I went to the Cairns show, and Maribyrnong Rodeo was on. Pretty close, so I went out to Mariba and I got first, second, and third in the open draft. Fair effort. And then the, the same year at the Chasers Towers show, I got first, second, and third in the fourth in the open draft. Yeah, right. And I was still drafting when I was show jumping. Yeah. And I was drafting my show jumpers. You drafted the show jumpers. Yeah, yeah. I'll be back. So I had pretty, some pretty handy horses, but it's it's marvellous what you can do with horses if you train them right. Yeah. But all my dra- jumping horses could turn and slide and spin and just do anything a drafting horse could do. So all I had to do was steer them around. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's hard to believe now in a world where 
Mm. If you went over to the jumping ring, you, you see in these warm bloods and that that you know they, they mm. wouldn't wouldn't have had that sort of training on them at all. No, well, those warm bloods wouldn't have that ability. Yeah, the, the, the horses that I was here jumping were some were thoroughbreds and some were purebred Arabs. My one of my top horses was a a grey horse. He was sixteen and a half hands. He was by a purebred Arab and out of a thoroughbred mare. He could do anything. I won the New South Wales Show Jumping Championships on him one year and, and you could camp after him and you could flag race him and take him out and win a hack with him. That's the sort of horses I had. And Kevin Bacon was the same. He was a pretty candy camped after rider, Kevin Bacon was, and he used to camp after jumping horses as well. Yeah, and what made you an all-rounder, Vic? How could you, what was your ace, do you think? If you had an ace up your sleeve... With those being able to cross horses over into different fields, what was it? Oh, well, I didn't think it was anything marvellous. <laughs> well, I'm sure it is. It was just normal to me. It was normal to you, yeah. So um, how many years would you have competed at Warwick for? I rode at Warwick in 1949 in the Bronx ride there and I competed at Warwick Three years ago, I think. I'd been rode at Warwick, I think, 67 years. 67 years as a contestant? Yeah, over the period of time from when oh, I first to the last time. And second in two Warwick Gold Cups? Yeah, second in two votes and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh and an eighth and a ninth in the Gold Cup, you know, a lot of different places. But I got two seconds in uh, two years in a row. What about in the rough stock events at Warwick? I won the Bronx Ride there in 56. Yeah. And I won it. I scored 93 in the final, which is a pretty high score. In the Bronx Ride? Yeah. And in the first round, I can remember I only had about an 86 score on the first horse. And then I I drew a grey mare in the final. Well, it it was a semi-final. They had a final and a semi-final and a final back in those days. And... uh, I scored 91 on the square mare and I drew this cream of the valley. He was a Palomino horse. He'd never ever been ridden at Warwick in time. He'd been there 17 years and nobody ever rode him. And I drew him in the final and I scored 93 on him. Holy hell. And that way we had three judges that day. We had um, Jack Riley and Arthur Winters and... Um, Oh, I just can't think of the third bloke. But there were three judges back in those days. Yeah, right. So what would you say is the, the toughest bronc you ever rode? Oh, it's pretty pretty hard to say because I've rode a few fairly tough ones, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that photo there coming out of that seat there at Rockhampton, that horse was never been ridden. Yep. And he was a tough horse, but I rode him. Cream of the Valley that I won the 93 on was an extremely tough horse to ride. And him, if you were riding time with him, about the 10 seconds, he'd flop down on the ground. Let me bug it. Back in those days, they had a trotting track at Warwick. And uh, I can remember, he'd go down and both my feet were still in the irons on the ground on the trotting track. Oof. <laughs> he flopped down and then he'd spin out of the air and go again. again. And uh, I jumped off him just after that because I knew the time it went. Yep. And I stepped off him. But um, probably one of the toughest rides I ever had <clears throat> was a, a horse in Bowen. 
back in about 1940, I think it was 1947, I was only I was 16 at the time. And this horse was a horse called Heavens, Heavens Above. He was a, a big bay horse. And he was owned by a bloke called Queensland Wally. And he'd been rode 27 times and nobody had ever rode him. And uh, I drew him at the second day of the Bowen Rodeo. And I top scored the whole rodeo on that horse. And they all ran. I was silly trying to get on him. They said, You'd never ever ride this horse. <laughs> Don't bet against Vic Goff. <laughs> yeah, right. So what would you say was your best camp draft horse, mate? Chestnut um, horse I'm on there, Casey. So he was your best one, you reckon? He was the best horse I ever had. I sold him at the Dolby Stock Horse Sale when he was 14-year-old. He made 22000 back in those days. Plenty of money. You know, like it was a lot of money for a 14-year-old gelding. And... Uh, he was the best horse I think I ever rode. Right, oh mate. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a hard question now. You you camp drafted for basically fifty plus years. Who's mm. the best horse and rider combination you ever competed against? Um, well, when you say the rider combination, there was better camp draft riders, and there was better bronc riders, but the the good camp draft riders never bronc rided, and they. They were doing their one thing. Yep. So it's hard for me to get a combination of rider. Probably I would say <clears throat> the best combination bronc rider and camp draft rider I've ever known was a bloke called Stumpy Timmons. Yep. And Stumpy Timmons won the Warwick Gold Cup and he won the bronc rider Warwick as well. But Stumpy Timmons was an exceptional rider. I went to his funeral. I was only a little. Mm. Bo- I was only a little boy, but I was at his funeral. Oh yeah, yeah. It was a cold day. Mm. So, what could Stumpy do that that set him apart? I was, I was I was a little boy. I didn't, you know, I was too young. Well, he could camp draft as good as better than most people. Yep. And he could ride a bronc ride and sit nice and neat in a bronc and and ride nice and neat and tidy. And doesn't matter. I mean, he could ride any sort of a bronc as well. And that's why I say he was a very neat bronc rider and he was an extremely good camp draft rider. Yep. But he was a very cool rider, you know, like he never got flustered or anything, that sort of stuff, you know. Yep. I was at Warwick when he won the bronc ride there. I'm just trying to think. He won the bronc ride on a, a tested horse that he had at Warwick. Uh, Greg Canavan owned the horse. Yeah. And uh, I was at Chinchilla in 19... 19- late 50s, and it rained in, and I was caught at Chinchilla for two or three weeks of the floods, and there was an old bloke there who used to deal horses, old bloke Russell, I think his name was. He was a big old fella, and he came to me, he said, I've got a chestnut horse out there, he said, I want to sell him, and he said, and I'll get you to ride him when you're here, and uh, I'll sell him, but he said, Manny Browns, he threw everybody, local bronc rider in the area, and I said, how much do you want for him? And he said, oh, I want 20 pounds for him. And I said, okay, well, the, if I ride him on my saddle, I said, I'll give you 40 pounds for him. <laughs> and I said, if he throws me, I'll <laughs> you know, get him for nothing. Anyway, he wouldn't be in it. So I, I went out and got this little chestnut horse. He was a nice-looking little horse, uh, not very tall, but very stocky. And I rode him in the chinchilla cutout yard for days. 
and that horse could buck and he'd drag your feet in the sand sucking back, you know. And I I rode him with a double of the whip and the spurs and I'd done everything and I had him all sore and the guts from spurring and flogging him. I, I mean, I could ride him. He, he couldn't throw me. Anyway, we're going to the Warwick Rodeo. No, Warwick, Warwick, it wasn't Warwick, it was Kalani Rodeo. Kalani. And I rang Greg up and I said, I've got a chestnut horse here. I said, you ought to buy him. I said, because I can't stop him from bucking. So anyway, I took him down and the Kalani Rodeo went there and I camped after it and that sort of stuff. And Greg Canavan bought him for me and I... I um, Anyway, he wanted to put him in the bronc at Kalani, and I said, don't put the pass. I said, he can't buck. I said, he's too sore. I said, look at the guts, and I flogged him and flogged him from bucking. Oh, he said, he'll be bloody right. So he stuck him in the bronc and he threw a bloody fellow 30 foot in the fucking air. <laughs> well, I called him Acrobat, and he, and he was a final horse at Warwick for years Is called that right? Acrobat. Yeah. And I was sure Stumpy Timmons rode that horse. Okay. Norm Woods won the Bronc Rider Warwick. And Norm Woods rode him and Wally tightened the girth up and they held him up and tightened the flank up on him and held him back in the suits for a long time before they let him out. And Norm just rode him. Yep. If, if you rode him in the final of the Bronc Rider Warwick, you won it on him. That's yep. how good he was. He's a good horse. And I'm sure Stumpy Timmons rode that horse. Yeah, right. Mm. Okay. So fast forward. How did you end up in America training horses? Um, I was at a place outside um, uh, Los Angeles. So, so how did the trip come about? Oh, it came about the first trip. I was over there in a short period of time. The Paint Horse Association was going in Australia and my daughter, uh, Vicky, was the paint queen in Australia. And the pri- part of the prize was that it was a free trip to America to the Paint Nationals in Oklahoma. And I went over there with her, but I was I stayed there for a while after they all came home and uh, I was working for people called Rightways and they were training paint horses. So I stayed there and worked horses with them for a little while and then I came home and I went back over, I think it was 1978, or 79, and I know I went, went to a horse show over there and I seen a bloke making a horse treadmill. So I was a bit interested in that and looked at it and I met the fellow that designed this horse treadmill. Anyway, I went and worked with him for a little while, spent a bit of time with him and uh, studied these treadmills. So I came back to Australia. would have been 79 I came back and I made the first treadmill in Australia in 1980. And it was only a little slow walk one, doing about five kilometres an hour. And I sold it to King Ranch for $375. (laughs) I can remember that. (laughs) Anyway, one thing led to another with horse treadmills. And uh, this bloke over there was having a lot of trouble with the slider beds, heating. Yeah. And the belts running on the slider bed was running hot. He was putting talcum powder on it and doing all sorts of things and he couldn't get it cooled down. So um, I had a bit to do with uh, the Sydney University and Dr. Reuben Rose was a leading vet down at the thing and he was doing a lot of uh, fitness on racehorses or horses. So I, he got me to go down with a treadmill and we set it up in Sydney and it wasn't going fast enough to get the blood level up and the, the things in the horses. 
So I went back and I made a bit better one, and it still wasn't good enough. So I went back home and uh, made another one. It was doing 48 kilometres an hour. Holy hell. So they could put a racehorse on it and gallop him flat. Yeah. And I solved a heating problem with the belt, so we had no more heating problems, and the blokes in America's didn't. (laughs) They sold like hotcakes? Yeah. So uh, I went out to the treadmill business in uh, about 80... Eight or something, and I'd had I'd sold four hundred treadmills around the world. Michigan State University in America bought them from him. And we had a lot of them in Dubai for the camels, the wider things, and they had flotation tyres and a crank axle, and you could drop it down, set it on the ground, and hydraulically raise it up, and they could tow it over the sand for the train and the camels. And uh, we had a bunch of them in Dubai, and I went over to Japan with them. We developed a computer control treadmill and you could put it on, say you wanted the heart rate of a horse at 180. You could put the treadmill on and keep the horse running at 180 heart rate or vice versa and all this sort of thing. We spent $120,000 getting this heart rate monitor fixed up and we designed our own heart monitor to run these treadmills. I made five of them. And I sold three of them to Japan, and the other two we never sold in Australia because the Australian trainer said, I can tell a horse's heart rate by looking at the veins sticking out on his snout. <laughs> yeah, right. So the Japs bought all the controlled ones, and Bill Lindsay in Kenilworth still takes makes the treadmills. He took over after me. Yep. He worked for me for eight years on it, and then he... I sold out of it and little Lindsay took it all over and he's still going to Japan with treadmills today. Might be why they're winning our Melbourne Cups, the buggers. Yeah. Well, John Maher. Yeah, he won a Melbourne Cup with What a Nuisance. Yeah, okay, with What a Nuisance. Yeah. So John Maher come out to my place at Peak Crossing. Yeah. Because we were making the treadmills at Peak Crossing and he said they got this horse, What a Nuisance, got a crook back and if they could get a treadmill for him. So anyway, I sold him a treadmill, pretty cheap, just to do him a favour. And uh, we had the treadmill on his hand at the moment. And the bloke that owns the bloody treadmill is bloody, uh, that what a nuisance, bloody, that real estate bloke down there. He's one seven. Lloyd Williams. Yeah, Lloyd Williams. And we took the treadmill down, set it up on these stables and they trained what a nuisance. I was at the Melbourne Cup, so what a nuisance went. And then... uh, Lloyd Williams makes a big announcement, a public announcement. He donated the prize money, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars it was to win it or some back then. He's donated that money to charity. But I couldn't get paid for the bloody treadmill. <laughs> 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 and uh Ah, the good old sport of kings. Yeah. So I uh I was in Perth one day and I I flew into Melbourne and I made a mistake. I ran his office up. And I said, I'll get a cab and we'll come out and collect the cheque for the treadmill, which is about three months overdue. So when I got out to the office, oh, the girl that writes the cheque, she's left, she's gone. So uh, it took me bloody two or three months to get paid for that treadmill. (laughs) (laughs) The ironic part about this story uh, is I've worked for that man too. Lloyd Williams. No, for John Barr. Oh, yeah, John, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, John, he went to Singapore and John Maher bought a treadmill off me while he was in Singapore 
And I said, well, the payment bill is going to be different this time. So anyway, <laughs> he paid for it up front this time. With, with the, not that John Maher was paying for the one in Melbourne, but he was associated with it. <laughs> Mate, well, you've done well to become an engineer for a guy that didn't really go to school. Hmm. So that's what I'm... See those big rotary walkers? Yep. They worked the horses free. I made the first one in the world of those. Yeah, how the horse are loose on the walker? Yeah. I was in America. There was a bloke was making the old hot walkers with the ropes hanging down. Yes. And the horses hold them back and pull that back all the time. And I went to boss, went to this fellow's place one day and I said, I said, why don't you make one where the horses, lanes around the horses could walk loose? Oh, he said, I'd never heard anything. He said, you wouldn't give them away. So, <laughs> so I went home and started making the bloody things. And you just pictured that in your mind, just something you just come up with yourself? Well, I just knew what a horse would, a horse has got a brain. He doesn't want to be lugged around all the time. He gets sick of it. That's why he's yeah. hands back. And when if he can work loose, he's going to be free. Yeah. And the horse will work up to the front of those and trot around. You can canter them in it and everything. Yeah. So I, um, I made the first ones of those in the world. And uh, I finished up, I um, uh, had the Lone Star Racetrack in, in Texas. Yeah. Um, oh, a lot of them in uh, Oklahoma. I sold them, heap of them into America. And then the Americans started copying them. Yeah. And I was, when I was selling them to America, the dollar on exchange rate was good. I could get them over there really cheap. But when the dollar exchanged, well, it killed it all. Yep. I could get a container into the States for $5,000 and I could put two treadmills in a 20-foot container. But all that changed because of the exchange rate. Yep. We're halfway through doing one here now. I've got a one to go to. Penrith after Christmas. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> still making them. Still making them. So tell me, do you still ride a horse, Vic? No, I give up. Well, see, my mum, that's pain. Yeah, right. Just lifting your shoulders, pain, oh, yeah. The pain's running down there. I can just lift that. Lift it. That's a glass of water. Uh, I can just lift that with that arm. I was getting cortisone injections in my shoulders and uh, it was working okay. And then my left shoulder started getting worse and worse. And I went to a specialist, Boke, and does all these shoulders. And he had a look at it about, oh, I don't know, six or eight months ago or something. And uh, he showed me on the computer the x rays all. He said, See, you're bone on bone. And he said, And what we've got to do is cut the end of that bone off and put a plastic knob on the end, and cut the other bone and put a plastic cup on the other end. And then we got to put all your tendons to your bones, and we pin them with little pin staples. And that was when the when the bloody pandemic was on and that sort of stuff. Anyway, he would do all that for thirty thousand dollars. You should be able to make something yourself for cheaper than that, shouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was still suffering the bastard, and I'd, I'm not very interested in getting all those things cut open when I was older. Oh, I bet. And then again. When I do that, he said, you won't be able to use your shoulder for about three months. And I thought, well, as it is at the moment, if I have a shower in the morning to dry myself with a towel, it's extremely painful. And to put my boots on, the pain is just unbelievable what I go through every day. Was that your bulldog and shoulder? No. I never got hurt in the rodeos. 
Yeah, right. People said, oh, it's all those horses who bucked off. I said, I hardly ever bucked off a horse. That's the plan, isn't it? I went the last 11 years of rodeo and I never bucked off a horse. In 11 years? Hmm. I never bucked off a horse. That's a hell of a record. Hmm. So I didn't buck off hardly any of them. Not that I could ride, I just hated falling off. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, Vic, what's the best advice you were ever given on horsemanship, on training horses? What's the best advice you were ever given? Oh, well, that's that's pretty hard to answer. Yeah. If you're starting off as a young horse, it's a, it's a slow process. Yep. And you've got to know your horse. You don't overdo your horse. Basically, it's just common sense. A horse can only take so much and otherwise he'll rebel and get sick of it. And uh, you've got to keep a horse keen. And uh, if you're working cattle or whatever you're doing, you just do enough to keep that horse interested all the time. You might work him cattle seven days a week or you might only work him three or four days a week. Some days of horses you ride this horse and you say he only wants a few more days. So it's a pretty complicated sort of a thing to answer. Absolutely, mate. Hmm. Right, eh? So if you, if you were to meet a young Vic Goff, 18-year-old, what advice would you give him? <laughs> Don't, don't go and try and ride so many bronks. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vic, uh, it's been an absolute blast. An hour with you has been terrific. I know you've got a lot of fans uh, all, all over Australia that, that have loved seeing you compete all over the years. You're an absolute treasure and what you've done is a credit to you, mate, and I really appreciate your time, Vic Goff. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks, mate. <laughs> From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram.